Good morning. Just a quick reminder, tomorrow's the last day to uh, send in an email for the Josh Garrels concert. Um, send it in by midnight tomorrow night and you'll be good to go. Um, I think living the life of a Christian is living a life of gratitude. And that's gratitude for um, the myriads of blessings that God gives us. And one of the things that I'm extremely grateful for um, is this, the ability to smell. Um, and, and I mean that. I, I love and have a deep passion for things that smell good. Uh, but not just things that smell good. Things that smell powerful and different and unique. I uh, can't explain it. I, have a, I love the smell of skunk, um, gasoline, like certain smells. Um, but, but more importantly than things that smell good um, are things that remind me, smells that remind me of other things. Uh, occasionally when I'm walking uh, in the spring or summer and somebody's cutting grass, Certain, a certain smell will literally take me back to sixth grade playing on the playground um, after freshly cut grass um, at our elementary school. Um, certain smells remind me of certain people. Um, certain smells remind me of certain foods. And it's amazing how layered um, this sense that God has given us is. Uh, and it, it's a little bit uh, like scripture where we can look at certain passages and the passages are, are just as pregnant with meaning. There's so much more going on than simply those words that are printed there in the event that's taking place. Uh, we looked at Exodus 17 on Monday and, and looked, about, looked at the one who was coming. Today we're going to look at the one who has come. So we're going to be sitting in John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Um, but by way of introduction, Jesus has been baptized He's been led into the wilderness where he's begun his, his ministry. Um, and at the end of chapter 1 uh, of John, Jesus goes to Galilee and he calls Andrew and he calls Philip and he calls Peter to follow him. And Philip says, okay, let me go. And he goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel that they found the one that the prophets and that Moses had written about. And they have this brief discussion, the two of them, Philip and Nathaniel, and they're talking about whether or not anything good can come from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes with Philip to meet Jesus. And this is the encounter in Scripture. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, we don't know what Nathanael was doing under the fig tree. Um, it's possible he was confessing his sins to God. It's possible he was praying, asking that God would reveal himself to him. Uh, we don't know, but whatever it was, Jesus' words elicit response that is praise before the King. And Jesus assures him and tells him that he will see far greater things. He says, you will see heaven opened, and you will see God's work and will that will be done in the Son of Man. And so from there, we're taken to a wedding feast. Um, on the third day, a wedding feast took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so uh, the first miracle that Jesus is about to perform is about to take place. Um, a wedding is taking place in Cana in Galilee. Uh, Jesus' mother is there, and the, he and the disciples show up. 
We don't know exactly what wedding ceremonies looked like. We don't know exactly what the proceedings looked like, but we do know a few, thing about, a few things about ancient Near Eastern weddings. Um, one, the groom's friends usually went by night to get the bride from her home and would bring her to the bridegroom's house. They would bring her back with torches and with lamps, and they would shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Words that will appear at the end of Revelation in a different wedding context. At the bridegroom's house, everything would be made ready, including a massive celebration, a literal wedding feast. Um, and at that wedding feast, hospitality was considered sacred. Um, there was even an ancient Near Eastern proverb that said, he who does not invite me to his wedding will not have me at his funeral. So it's into this context that Jesus, and remember his very new disciples, come. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. In the course of the celebration, apparently wine runs out, and given the cultural importance of hospitality, it's likely that Jesus' mom felt bad for the groom. So she goes to Jesus hoping, I think, that he's going to actually be able to do something to fix it. She knows him and knows what he might be able to do, um, although we don't know exactly what she expected him to do. She asks, and Jesus' response may appear like he's planning not to do anything. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His response is interesting. He calls her woman, and it sounds almost rude, almost condescending, but it's not. It's in no way disrespectful. It's, it's really um, just a little bit more distant than anything else, as if he were to call her like ma'am or madame, very kind of formal. And the reason he calls her ma'am, the reason he's distant with his mom, is the fact that his ministry has now begun. Jesus' response may appear that it's rude, but it's not. It's simply a reflection of the fact that the Savior is now on his way to the cross. His relationship to his mother has shifted. And he tells her as much. He says, my hour has not yet come. The hour is not yet here for me to be glorified. And when it does come, it will come in a way that you cannot even imagine. His eye is set to his mission, and the cross is already looming. But his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think it's awesome that Mary still thinks that he's going to be able to fix things. Even if she doesn't understand his comment, doesn't understand why he said that, she tells the servants to do whatever he says. And Jesus does act. He does something, and here's what he does. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So this miracle is wonderfully layered. Just on, on the top picture, it's fairly simple, right? They run out of wine, wine at the wedding. There are six stone water jars. Jesus has the servants fill those water jars to the very brim, all the way to the very top, and then commands him, draw some water out. The water has turned to wine, and it's choice wine. It's the best wine. It's better than any of the wine that's come. So Jesus, he's turned the water to wine. He saved the groom from embarrassment. 
He's enabled the celebration to continue. He's likely pleased his mothers. Um, he's also um, likely baffled the disciples, but the disciples also see and they begin to believe in him. Um, but it's also loaded with theological and historical meaning. Um, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Every miracle that Jesus performed had purpose. It revealed his character, it revealed his nature, it revealed his glory. And this miracle revealed just that. The kingdom of God and its king were at hand. The old has gone and the new has come. Those six stone water jars. Note that there's six, a number of incompleteness. Those six stone water jars, these items that were used for ceremonial cleansing, they signified the old order. They signified what was. They signified the law, which served as a school teacher to reveal our need and our sin. The entire ceremonial system, which set God's people apart and ordered their worship. The prophets who called for repentance and obedience and holiness. Their time has come to an end. Their days, their minutes, and their seconds have literally been filled. And they're filled because the new has come. The new wine, the better wine, was a picture of the new order that had come, in every way superior to the old. But this new order, it wasn't a new law, it wasn't a new ceremony, it wasn't new rules, it was a person, the person in whom all of those things found completion. The law is filled and perfected by the sinless one, who in his perfect obedience would call us to an even higher standard than the law called us. The ceremonial and the ceremonies, they had all served their course because they all pointed to the one who had arrived. And the prophet's words and their longings and their desires and their pointings like arrows had found their bullseye in Jesus Christ. The stone jars and the water and the wine are this wonderful, earthy, gritty, temporal picture of what is transpiring cosmically. The heavens have literally been ripped open and God has descended to his people as one of his people. And that sets the stage for perhaps the, the cooler and coolest question about this passage. Why did he perform his first miracle at a wedding? Uh, a few years back, I had an opportunity to go to a restaurant called The French Laundry in Napa in California. Um, it's, it's a three-star, uh, a Michelin three-star restaurant since 2007. Several years, it's been voted the best restaurant in the world. Um, chef named Thomas Keller operates the restaurant um, and had a chance to go with some friends and we go and, and it's a really homey place uh, it's, it's not super fancy schmancy it's just it's really homey uh, you go in and you sit down and as the food comes out um, as the food began to come out I realized that I was in for something that I wasn't expecting the first dish that came out is called oysters and pearls um, it's literally it's a sabayon which you can look that up, of pearl tapioca with bosoleo oysters and white sturgeon caviar. Um, it's a Thomas Keller classic, and it's basically this rich, buttery, hollandaise-like sauce over cold, briny caviar and these super hot, plump oysters. Um, that's it. So it comes out in this little dish, and um, my first bite of this dish was really interesting. Because you're going to, to one of the best restaurants in the world and I'm expecting everything's going to be amazing, right? So the first bite 
I realized I'd never tasted anything like what I had just taken a bite of. And I had to quickly reorient my mind and my expectations. This wasn't about eating something that was going to be, oh, that's so good. It was going to be about eating something that was, in some ways, perfect. Richer than I imagined, more perfectly put together than I imagined, flavor profiles that I had never conceived of existing. So my expectations shifted. Um, and I think that's what happens when we ask, why a wedding? Our expectations get deeper, and there's a fuller answer. And here's what I think is happening. Until this point, until this wedding, until the birth of Jesus, all of history had pointed to the coming one. Every breath, every step, every raindrop was paving the way for Jesus to come. So everything for all of history was looking forward to him. And now, after his ascension, after the resurrection, everything looks back to him, to the one who has come. So here he is, God in space and time, forward, back, but he is pointing us to what is to come. Literally, so that we can look back and we also look forward because of what he has done, because of what he has brought because of the hope in what he's done. Looking forward, looking back, and then he's going to do something that makes us look forward. And he begins to do it even here and now. He is the great bridegroom, and he has come to purchase his bride. His first miracle at a wedding points to another wedding. It points to the very end game of why he came. Revelation 19, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and let us be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That is our future. To feast with the Lamb when the wedding of the Lamb takes place. And as the striking of the rock in Exodus 17 looked forward to the atoning love at the cross, now his first miracle, Jesus' first miracle, points to the consummated glory of the King, of the Lamb, of the groom, to his bride, his people, us. So there was no better event, no more perfect celebration, no party or festival or feast that was more fitting. And we see why Jesus chose to do his first miracle at a covenant wedding. The groom and the bride looking forward to the bridegroom and us, his bride. I want to close with with a final thought. We cling as Christians to the hope of what's to come. And we have faith in what's to come because of the one who has already come and what he has completed. But I want to be really clear about something. What is coming does not invalidate what is. Holding on to the hope that we have in the eternal does not in any way minimize the present. It's not an attempt to bury our heads and walk blindly through this world. Instead, to look to what is coming, it does literally just the opposite because the promise of the feast to come answers the depths of the fall. It speaks into our deepest pain and into our most wonderful, glorious joy. And hear this. To the pain, Jesus says, I know. 
He says, I have carried it for you. I am with you. And I will one day wipe every tear from every eye. It's not that they don't matter. It's that they will all be addressed. It's the most profound joy, Jesus says. Enjoy it, love it, but it's only a taste of what's to come. We cling to our hope of what is coming because of the faithfulness of the one who has already come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that <clears throat> we look to salvation history and we see that all of it pointed to your coming. We thank you, Lord, that at your resurrection and your ascension, you give us the ability to look back at what you've done, your faithfulness, your mercy, what you accomplished on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that that gives us hope to look forward to what's to come. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in our community and in our country. Uh, we think of the floods, everyone in Houston. We ask, Lord, that you'll be merciful to them. But I pray, Lord, that even when we grieve, we would never grieve as those without hope, that we would rest firm and sure in your promises, and we look forward to the day when you will indeed wipe every tear from every eye. Be with us today. By your Spirit, bless us. Help us to glorify you, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>